0: the outline with all the fill in the blanks for the last sermon in this particular series that we 're doing right now called big deals it 's about decision making being a better decision maker and but what I would like for you to do right now is before we start filling in the blanks i 'd like for you to turn over to the side that looks like this uh, i 'm really grateful to Richard for uh, putting some of this uh, material in a really great way that is mean, formatted in a way that's easy for you to access. And what I would like for you to do is to put this in a place where you're going to be able to find it for a while. Because uh, chances are in the next week or in the next month, you're going to be facing a pretty big decision in your life. And it might be health, it might be children, it might be a marriage, it might be finances, it might be retirement work-related, whatever... Uh, You know, as well as I do, that a big decision takes a lot of faces. And to have this someplace where you can be reminded of some of the material that we've walked through together over the last six weeks, learning how biblically to kind of stop and to pause and to ask the right kinds of questions, to get the right kind of counsel, to pray for the right kind of wisdom before doing anything is a really, really great thing to do. And if you look up in the right-hand corner, there is a reminder. And and here's the thing too. Before I talk about that, here's the thing too. This is not just for you. Uh, nothing that I preach to you is really just for you. I want it to be for you. I want it to be something that you embrace. But it's really for your family. It's for your spouse. It's for your children. It's for your colleagues, it's for your friends. You know, you're not the only one that's going to be facing the big decisions. And to be able in our community, or with our families, or with our friends, or wherever we find ourselves, to be able to minister to people and to show them the wisdom that comes to us from the kingdom of God in such a way that we can sit down and show them in practical ways driven by God's word, that we can make better decisions, decisions that not only bless us, but bless the people around us, then we are going to step further in bringing people closer to the kingdom of God. So keep this information close. Um, going to that right-hand corner is just a reminder. You know, In fact, if you're sitting down and talking with somebody, you're talking to your kids, one of the things you need to impress upon them and impress upon your own heart, if it's you that's making the decision, is that decisions are a big deal for two reasons. One, our decisions are like steering wheels. Our decisions are like steering wheels. We decide our way into the future, right? You are where you are today. I am where I am today because of decisions that have been made. And then number two, personal decisions have public implications, which means that you're not the only one and I'm not the only one that are personally affected and directly affected by my decisions. A lot of time there's collateral damage or there's collateral blessing that takes place because of the quality of the decisions that we have made. Now, at the heart of all good decision-making are good questions. In fact, that's the next statement in this outline. At the heart of good decisions are good questions. And there's an actionable item in all of this that helps us to be very disciplined, good decision-makers. And that is the three things that are up here on the screen. That's where we learn how to pause and to question and before doing we pause. we got to give ourselves some time. We can take the time that we need to think through, that is to take the time to think through the questions that are going to give us the counsel, the direction, the wisdom, the time in prayer, to be able to ask God for discernment, to be able to talk to wise people or people who have been down this road before us, to be able to get their kind of counsel in order that once we have that information, the third thing is then to do what it is that we know to be the wise thing to do. So, you got to pause, and then you got to ask five questions. I've already given you four. You'll remember these. The integrity question is this, and it's one of the most basic. Am I being honest with myself? One of the best decisions you will ever make is to be honest with yourself. Why or why not you want to do or not do something. Number two, the legacy question. At the end of time, when people are talking about your life, or when... Uh, people are, are speaking even at your funeral, or they're tell, telling the story of some event that took place, a part of the history of your life. What is the story you want to tell? Are you going to be the hero? Are you going to be the villain? Sometimes you just need to pause and be able to ask the question, who am I in this in this answer that I'm looking for? Am I looking to be the hero that's going to bless people and to bless God as I've been blessed? Or am I going to do something that's super selfish and super self-centered that's going to have some collateral damage? Question number three is about the conscience. The conscience, as you know, is that gift from God that's sort of a personal interior uh, alarm system that sometimes you may not know that something is wrong, but you just know that there's this tension, this red flag that's waving. And the conscience question is this. Even if you don't know what it is, what is this this tension that's demanding my attention? Right now, it'll give you a chance to stop and to think and ask questions. And then last week, we looked at the maturity question what is the wise thing to do? Very simple question. Sometimes we don't ask it, though. Sometimes we just do what we want to do or we do things quickly, when sometimes we just have to pause and ask the question and answer honestly what is the smart, wise thing to do in this situation. Now, this morning, we're going to wrap up. This series on good decisions and being better decision makers, and I'm going to start with a disclaimer. If, you know, before we consider this fifth question, if you consider the four questions that we have already looked at, that I just went over this sheet with you with, and you answer you pause and you answer honestly the the those questions, what you're going to find is that it's going to go better for you, and not only go better for you, but it's going to go better for the people that you love. If you think about these first four questions and you pause and you answer them and you're blessed by good decisions, then what that is is a return on your investment. There is something good that is going to happen personally for you if you take the time to pause and to ask and to question and then to do. fifth question is a little bit different. The fifth question, and... You know, I don't know any other way to say it except to say that with this fifth question, there is not the promise of a tangible, measurable kind of return. In fact, that is the very thing that is going to make the fifth question the most dangerous and the most difficult question to ask. And the reason, it's up here on the screen. The fifth question focuses on making someone else's life better. The fifth question focuses on making someone else's life better it is the question that deals with relationships now the best place that i can think of this morning for us to kind of walk through this in our mind is to go into john chapter 13 we've we spent a lot of time over the last 20 years talking about john 13 right it's one of my favorite chapters in the entire bible and when you think about john chapter 13 most people think about service it's the washing of the disciples feet right That's all about service. It's washing those nasty feet. And it is, but behind the service is the love that motivates the service. John chapter 13, the washing of the disciples' feet, is about service, but more so, foundationally, it is about love. Look at the first verse. It was just before the Passover festival, Jesus knew that the hour had come for Him to leave this world and to go to the Father. Having what, church? Having what? Loved. I mean, this is about love. Having loved his own who were in the world, he what? Loved them to the very end. It is about washing feet, but it's washing the feet as an act of love. Now, you know the story as well as I do. Jesus is in Jerusalem. It's the Passover. He is getting ready to die For the sins of the world. And right before this, contextually, these cats are arguing over who is going to be the greatest. Who's going to be number one? Who's going to sit in what chair? And they begin to get indignant with each other because you know what this looks like, right? As as men, especially, begin to one-up on each other, they begin to get indignant and they begin to push each other around. It's not a very act of love that they're showing towards one another. In fact, their messaging is this. Not you, but me. Not you, but me. You last, me first. And Jesus hears what they're saying. Jesus knows what's in their heart. And then he sees what's on their feet. And Jesus gets up and he strips down and he wraps this towel like a servant does back in the day. wraps his towel around his waist and he begins to wash their feet. Now, this is in the pre-pedicure world. And this is absolutely one of the nastiest jobs you can ever imagine. It is the most menial and demeaning and disgusting job that you can imagine in the time of Jesus. You were not even allowed by law to compel your servant to wash your feet. So menial and demeaning and disgusting was it. And this is in a world before there are socks. And it's not, you know, this cool kind of a devotional exercise that we do a lot of time in the post-Pedigure world. This is more like the washing of a first century peasant is, was more like changing the diaper of someone else's baby. It was not cool. And notice what Jesus does not say as he's doing this. He's not saying why am I doing this? This is not my fault. Why am I why am I knee deep in dirty, you know, dirty feet and disgusting feet when it's not my fault that they weren't watching where they walked and what they stepped into? Why am I washing their feet? It's not my fault. But in that moment, it is listen to what it is that Jesus is saying. He's saying your feet need to be washed? Let me do it. You need your feet washed? Let me do that for you. Because in just a couple of hours, from that very moment, he's going to say, you need your sins washed away? Let me do that. You need your sins washed away? I can do that for you. I'm willing. I'll I'll do that for you. But in between... Jesus is going to tell these, these, these fellas how to think about all of this feet washing. Now, you remember at some point, you know, he's going to get to Peter. He's going around the tables washing everybody's feet. He gets down there towards the end. There's Peter. And Peter says, no, 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 no. You're not going to do that. Not, not for me. And Jesus says to him something very straight. He says, if you don't allow me to do this, you don't get me. You don't get my love. You don't get me. You don't get my kingdom. You are not going to understand or get my cross. And if you don't get my cross, then how are you ever going to pick up your cross? And if you can't pick up your cross, you can't be my disciple. What he tells them is going to become the greatest daily challenge that they are going to face for the rest of their lives. And so we pick up in verse 12. When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes. He returned to his place. I mean, you can imagine this. I mean, they could see maybe them washing his feet, but the Master, the Lord, washing their feet. The place is quiet. He lays, he inclines down near that triclinium table, and he asks, Do you understand what I have done for you? You call me teacher and Lord, rightly so, for that is exactly what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, I am giving you an example. You should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Very truly, I tell you, no servant is greater than than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. A little bit later, a tiny speck of time in history later, he says, same night, verse 34, a new command I'm going to give you. Love one another. Three words. Love one another. And then he begins to define it. He says, As I have loved you, so you must love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you're my disciples if you love one another. Love one another. Love is a feeling, right? I mean, there's all kinds of things that we love. And it fills us with kind of sometimes very warm feelings, sometimes some kind of gooey feelings. Love can be an emotion, love can be a feeling, it's an affection, but it's more than that, biblically speaking. Love is always going to be an action that begins with a decision. One of the ways that we define love around here in this place it comes to us from Dallas Willard. I think it's an absolutely uh, remarkable definition. I love this definition, short, concise, and it's spot on. Dallas Willard defines love this way, love is to will the good of another. Love is to will the good of another. Love will become the greatest daily challenge that you and I are going to face for the rest of our lives every day. Learning how to love someone, to love somebody where you are willing their good the way that Jesus serves and loves other people will be the greatest challenge that you're going to face for the rest of your life. And Jesus says, not only is this going to be a challenge and a way that you live your life, following my example, treating each other the way that I just treated you, but it's going to become the hallmark attribute of people who live in the kingdom of God. It's not going to be our doctrines. It's not going to be our buildings. It's not going to be our biblical knowledge. It's not going to be even the version of the Bible that we use. But it's going to be our Christ like love for other people. So now let me give you the fifth question. The fifth question is this What does love require of me? What does love require of me? What does the love that I see in John 13, exhibited by Jesus throughout his life, been in a pinnacle, maybe John 13, and then a few moments later on the cross, what does that kind of love require of me as I deal with other people, other relationships that I have? This question, what does love require of me, addresses every decision that we're going to face with other people. It's going to address, I mean, it's just going to really pave the way for better relational health in this world, in this, this life. It will help you to tame your tongue. It will help you to apologize sooner than later. It's going to, to be the answer that says, I need to forgive when needed. It's going to create patience rather than wrath, listening rather than dismissing. In every relationship, the answer to this question is going to reduce at some level the friction that we feel for other people. It's going to inform how we date one another, how we marry. One of the things, if you've ever done premarital counseling with me as a couple, one of the things that you'll remember, and sometimes eyes get really big, is when I say, you know, sometimes the best thing for your marriage, the very best thing for your marriage is for you not to get your way. It's going to inform how you parent, how you boss, how you manage, how you coach, how you work. It helps to fill in the blank when we do not have a thou shalt or a thou shalt not when it comes to people. The question, what does love require, intersects every encounter with another human being. And it does not You know, the answer to that question is not always going to be for the very thing that that person thinks they need. Sometimes the very loving thing that you do. You know this as a parent. Sometimes the thing that is best, the thing that is most loving is to do something sometimes that's a little difficult and sometimes can bring a little pain. One time Jesus is on his way. There's this rich young man that walks up to him. He says, great teacher, that means the question du jour, the question of the day. What must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus probably doesn't even stop uh, stride. He just starts answering the question, snapping his finger. He begins to rattle off some of the Ten Commandments. You know, don't murder, don't commit adultery, do not steal, don't lie, honor your mom and dad. The young man said, you know, all of these I've been doing ever since I was a little boy. What do I still lack? And Jesus stops and turns towards him, and notice what the text says. He looked at him and loved him. And then he told him exactly what he didn't want to hear. One thing you lack. Now this cat did not want to hear that he lacked anything. I've been doing all of this. And even though he asked the question, what do I lack? He doesn't think that he lacks. What he's looking for is not information, but confirmation. You are just fine. And he's not. And the most loving thing that Jesus can do is in a loving way, in a gentle way, in a way that communicates truth into this young man's heart, which he does, is to say one thing you lack. Go sell everything you have and give it to the poor. You'll have treasure in heaven. And then come follow me. And at this, Mark tells us, verse 22, the man's face fell... And he went away sad. In closing, let me give you just two things to think about when it comes to how we love other people and answering that question of what does love require of me when it comes to all of my relationships, whether they're intimate relationships or acquaintances. The first thing, and this is such a biblical thing, you put the person behind you in front of you. Can you say that with me? Put the person behind you in front of you. Let's say it again. Put the person behind you in front of you. Turn to the person on your side and say, I'm going to put you in front of me. You put the person behind you in front of you. You know what that means? That means from this day forward, your decisions will be made with the interests of others in mind. And as I said earlier, You know, some of you are going to take advantage of this, aren't you? I can just tell by the way you're laughing. (laughs) Hey, but this is straight from Scripture. Philippians chapter 2. Paul is writing to a church that's getting kind of messed up with each other in relationships, and at the heart of it is love. And he gives them some very practical advice in the second chapter. And after he has reminded them of the greatness of the Incarnation, or as he begins to talk to them about the incarnation of Jesus, he says, you know, in your relationships with one another, you've know, you got to have the mind of Christ. Verse, two, uh, uh, verse 3, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. Not only looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. Many of you know the, uh, the Bible translation called The Message. It was uh, put together over a number of years by Eugene Peterson. It actually started when he was uh, doing some work in Galatians at a church in Baltimore he was working at. And out of pastoral concern, he wanted people to understand what the Word of God was saying. So he began to retranslate into kind of East Coast, modern 20th century language. And in his message, this is how he puts Philippians. Don't push your way to the front. Don't sweet talk your way to the top. Put yourself aside and help others get ahead. Don't be obsessed with getting your own advantage. Forget yourselves long enough to lend a helping hand. Put the person behind you in front of you. And then, number two, and then we'll close with this do unto others as Christ has done unto you. Do unto others as Christ has done has done unto you. The golden rule, which, you know, is famous to all of us and it's a beautiful way to live, goes like this, right? Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Jesus, for disciples of Jesus, ratches it up And he says, I am the standard of love and the way that you're supposed to love each other. And this is the standard. You love each other the way that I have loved you, which means that I'm willing to die for you. I'm willing to take your bad and your unrighteous and your unholy in order for you to thrive and to flourish and, and to move forward and to progress towards the kingdom of God and to progress towards heaven. And that is the gold standard for disciples of Jesus. Jesus is giving a new standard of how we treat one another. If we are disciples of Jesus, this is the standard. It's not how we happen to be feeling about ourselves today. But the standard is the historical fact of what Jesus did with his life and on the cross to save us from our sins and to draw us, not just in a superficial way, but in the most profound of ways, unto God in relationship. It is the way that he always treated a human being, with love. And if we ask ourselves this question, is not, I mean, isn't this the way, isn't this what we hope? Is this not the way that we would love to have everyone treat us? The way that Christ treated them you know, we're going to sing a song right now and we want to give you an opportunity to become a disciple of Jesus. And it's easier than you think. It's a life that is, at times can be very, very difficult, but it is a life in, in, in light of the difficulty, the, the return in terms of blessing and significance and hope and power and, and guilt-cleansed conscious, uh, conscience and uh, life walking this earth with God. I mean, you just go on and on and on. The greatness of this life and the kingdom of God. And we would like for you to share in that. And for those of us who are ready to praise God because of the greatness of the way that He blesses this life, let's spend a minute with Brad leading us and singing. Let's all stand and praise God together.